the next four weeks going to be in a series uh, that I'm just calling Summer with Jesus. And so we're just telling the stories of Jesus this year, and we're going to take four weeks to talk about uh, Jesus. Today will be Jesus on the mountain, then we're going to go Jesus on the lake, we're going to go Jesus in the desert, and then we're going to go Jesus by the pool. And, uh, and so poolside with Jesus, that'll be a lot of fun. But we're, uh, we're just going to tell some of these stories, and, and, and it should be a, a fun series. So, so just so you know, uh, last couple weeks, uh, again, Phil and Isaiah filled in for me. I'm here for four weeks. After that, I'm on a mission trip for two Sundays to India. And uh, during those two Sundays, uh, our own Brian Teeson will be speaking for us. We're looking forward to that. He does a really great job. And then the following week, uh, Valley Church's Raleigh Galgan will be here to speak for us. And uh, so I'm really excited about him. Uh, You guys getting to hear from him. And uh, so that'll be really good. And then uh, we'll dive into fall and chaos and anarchy and everything else. So, all right. So we are... Uh, going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5. Now, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 uh, is a section of Scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount, all right? Uh, we call it the Sermon on the Mount because it was a sermon that Jesus preached on a mount, and on a mountain. So uh, it's a clever title. So um, anyway, we, it, it's, it's, I say this sermon, even, even outside the fact that Jesus is the one that preached it, this sermon is probably the most important sermon that has been preached in the history of the world. Um, because in it, and, and if you read through it, <coughs> there's a lot of moral teaching. Now, read through it, you'll know what I'm talking about. But there's a lot of moral teaching. And a lot of times I think we can get hung up on just kind of this teaching of morals and, and that sort of thing. But there's so much going on there than just simply Jesus saying, do this, don't do that. That it, in fact, that we're going to focus on the first 12 verses. <coughs> Sorry, I got a something. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> All right. So we're going to first focus on the first 12 verses, which uh, when I was a kid in Sunday school uh, was called, you know, I was taught that it's called the Beatitudes. It's called the Beatitudes because it's the, it's the verses that say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are, you know, all these blesseds. And, um, and it comes from the uh, Latin word beatus, which means blessings. And so that's why they call it the, the Beatitudes. Now, um, I, at one point, in fact, I've taught this before and heard this taught before, that the Beatitudes are to the New Testament what the Ten Commandments are to the, New, to the Old Testament. So with the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, you have this, the establishment of the law, God saying, thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt, you know, all, you know, all that stuff. And, and then with the New Testament, Jesus gives us this, these Beatitudes that are kind of uh, a, a way of looking at might be New Testament law. But if you only look at, look at it as New Testament law, I think you're really missing the point of what Jesus is doing here. It's not just Jesus giving us another list of rules it is, in effect, Jesus making an announcement. Jesus is making an announcement, and he's making this announcement of, basically, you guys know what the world you live in looks like. You know the rules of this world. I'm going to tell you something different because a new kingdom is here. I'm announcing a new kingdom to you, and the rules have changed. And the rules have changed. There's a great old movie from the 80s called uh, The Right Stuff. Anybody ever seen The Right Stuff? It's a story, uh, three people. All right, 
Go back and watch it. It's a really good movie. But it's a story of, um, uh, of the, the, the pilots who uh, would eventually break the sound barrier. Really uh, interesting movie. And I've, I've heard uh, Chuck Yeager was the one who, who was able to accomplish that feat. And, and in interviews since the movie was made, they asked, they've asked him, you know, how accurate was the movie? And he's like, yeah, it was actually a little bit different than it was portrayed in the movie. But for the sake of our story today, we're just going to stick with the telling of the movie. So... In the movie, um, um, what's happening is that all these pilots fail time after time after time to break the sound barrier, and a lot of times they fail in disaster and in death, uh, fiery you know, crashes and that sort of thing. And what was happening is that as they would approach the sound barrier, things would go haywire inside the jets that they were flying. And so something like, you know, it, as we pull up, pull back on the stick to get the nose of the plane up and change direction that way, and instead, you know, something different would happen, and these, these pilots would be crashing. And so it, in the movie, it's Chuck Yeager who realizes that when he reaches this, people reach the sound barrier, um, the opposite of what you think should happen was actually what was happening. And so he had, the, he was the one that had the thought, uh, maybe instead of pulling back I'll push forward on the stick, and, and that will take care of the problem. And so he does that, and he's able to stay in the air and break the sound barrier and the whole thing, right? And so I think that the, the Christian faith and following Jesus Christ is a lot of times like that. It's oftentimes forcing yourself to do something that is completely unnatural to you, that everything in your being, all of your training, all of your observations of the world, everything about you says you should not do this. Like God is calling you to do something. He's calling you to be obedient to him. And everything about out it, you're just looking at it going, if I do that, this will not go well. I can't do that thing. It's like, I've always said that to me, following Jesus oftentimes is like being, having your head pushed underwater and being told to take a big breath. Like you can't physically make yourself do that at times, right? Like that, that, that would just be nearly impossible for your brain to do that. And yet faith a lot of times is very much like that. God calls us out of the boat and says, walk on the water. God calls us out of the conventional wisdom of how to do money and finances. God calls us out of the conventional wisdom of how to raise kids or do career or whatever else. And in that, he calls us to something different. And the idea of doing something different different is, is, is very much the same as feeling like, uh, I got to breathe underwater here. This is not going to go well for me. And Jesus, when he makes this announcement that you know what the kingdoms of this world look like, I've, I'm establishing a new kingdom, and this is the rule of the new kingdom. In fact, what I want you to do is even before the kingdom is fully ushered in, what I want to do as, for you to do as followers of mine is I want you to start living as if the kingdom were already here. I want you to start living as if in the next chapter, the prayer that he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to live your lives as if the kingdom were already here. And so this is how he starts off that talk in uh, chapter five of Matthew, starting with verse one. It says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. There he is, mountain. <laughs> he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, 
saying, and this is what he says, uh, when it says his disciples came to him, it doesn't just mean the 12. It was everybody that was following him. And there was a large crowd that was gathered there to hear what he had to say. So he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus lays out this idea. Now, I used to, when I was a kid, when I would read these verses, because <clears throat> this is one of those things like the Ten Commandments and other, you know, John 3.16 and other things that we were forced to memorize in Sunday school because we needed to get a candy bar. <laughs> and so, um, and in fact, when, when Janine said, um, it'd be like youth group with candy, <laughs> I don't know. We'll be meeting out in the van in the parking lot. There's candy. Come on. No, anyway, so anyway. Um, so, so we, uh, memorizing this, these verses when I heard blessed are, I, I heard it the way my grandma would say it, which was my grandma would have said something to the effect of, uh, oh, the, those poor in spirits, bless their little hearts, right? Oh, the, the meek and those people who mourn, just oh, bless their little hearts. All these people who are going through, I heard, heard my grandma Meyer say that so many times as a kid growing up. Anytime anybody, she heard anybody was going through a tough time. Somebody came down with, with cancer or as she called it, the sugar diabetes, um, um, you know, or whatever. Oh, oh, bless their little hearts, you know, and, and, and she would do that. And so I read, as a kid would read these words going, oh, these people who have something to mourn about, you know, God's going to comfort you. When, if, if all this, this list of bad things, if all this list of bad things happen to you, God's going to be there for you. Bless your little heart, right? And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, he's kind of saying the offense. He's saying, if you want to be considered blessed in my kingdom, if you want to enjoy the blessings of my kingdom, then this is how your life will look. You will be poor in spirit. You will mourn from time to time. You'll be meek instead of power grabbing. You'll be on and on and on, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If you want to experience the blessings of this new kingdom I'm ushering into this world, this is what a citizen of that kingdom looks like. Now, for those of you who have been coming to church and, you, you know, I assume you're here mostly because you'd like to get closer to God. You like the idea of, you know, growing your faith and becoming a more spiritual person, developing a relationship with Jesus, however you want to term that. And I doubt any, any person in this room started coming to Living Hope Church because they, you were thinking, if I could just be poor in spirit... Oh, that would be great. If I could just increase my spiritual poverty, right? But yet Jesus is actually telling us that's what he wants us to do. 
so what does that, like, what does that mean? What does that look like? So I want to spend a little bit of time just kind of going through most of these and, 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 and kind of describing the life that Jesus is calling us to live, okay? So he starts off, my favorite one is that first one where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Like, it doesn't seem like something that any of us would want to attain, spiritual poverty. But I think spiritual poverty doesn't mean, what it actually means is you having a right and proper view of who you are and who God is. Who you are and who God is. That God loves us because he is God and he is love. He does not love us for anything that we can give him. In the same way today's Father's Day, in the same way that most of us fathers in the room, we love our kids. I love my kids to death. I would do anything for my kids. I, I, I desire to help them. I desire to teach them and train them. I will. I, in fact, I had a talk with, with a couple of my girls that were fighting the other day, and, and I, I, I explained, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. If, I, if we were walking through Walmart and somebody starts getting in your face and abusing you, you better believe your dad's going to start abusing them. I will get in their way. I know your pastor's not supposed to say that, but I'm a dad, all right? I don't play around with that stuff. Nobody's going to abuse my kids. That's not happening. And as a dad, I don't love them with that level of intensity because of anything that they bring to the table. Because they bring nothing to the table. <laughs> nothing. A smile, an occasional joke that I can post on Facebook. But there is, I'm not sitting back waiting for my kids to provide and bring something home so that we can eat or so that we can pay rent or so that we can whatever, fill in the blank. I, that My kids bring nothing to the table other than what I actually want from them. And it's the same thing. Like, you know what I want from my kids? I have, I have little girls that are artistic types. And so they love bringing me arts and crafts. They love it. Every, and I'm not even joking. It's like every single day they scratch something on a piece of paper with crayons or paints, or they mold something out of clay, whatever, put some pipe cleaners together. And dad, I, I made this for you. And I'm, and I am, I'm my, every single time my first thought is, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> what am I going to do? Where am I going to put this? Our house is overwhelmed with stuff, and now I got one more scrap of paper that I can't throw away until they leave the room. And, and like, I, like, I, like, what am I going to do with this? Like, I don't need, I mean, it's sweet. Don't get me wrong. It's sweet. But I don't need any of that stuff from them. I just don't. In fact, the truth is, if I never got another art and craft for my kids, I would be totally fine. But you know what I do want for my kids? I love it, and I am over the moon when they want to be with me. Like, that's the greatest thing my kids can give me. And now that I have adult kids, if one of my adult kids actually calls me or texts me, they don't call me, but if they text me, like, hey, you want to hang out? You want to go do this? That is the greatest. I love that so much. 
that they still want to be with me, to sit with me, to fall asleep on my lap, to, Isaiah doesn't do that anymore, but, (laughs) but, uh, but (laughs) not since a couple weeks ago anyway, so, um, but not like just that they desire, that's the greatest. You don't have to give me anything. Like the, if you, like if you have all this time and you choose to spend it with me, that's, that's all, that's it. That's everything. That's everything. And our heavenly father, I think is much the same way. There's nothing you can give him that he needs. Nothing. Let me, let me drop a little th- uh, hard theology on you. Not even a relationship. He doesn't need a relationship with you. He desires one. He wants one. But he lives in perfect community, perfect community with the Spirit and the Son. He is not longing for relationship. He didn't create humans because he just couldn't bear to be without us. He lives in perfect community with the Spirit and the Son. But he creates us, and he does love us, and he desires for us to be with him. He desires, we, we bring nothing to the table. That's our spiritual poverty. It's us realizing who he is and who we are and the fact that I have nothing to offer him that he needs. Nothing. He chooses to love me because he is love. That's his choice. And so I just come to him like a kid walking up to his dad, expecting love, even though I have nothing to give in return. Expecting love. That's a beautiful, it seems like spiritual poverty would be something you would want to avoid, but it's actually, there's there's great freedom in that kind of spiritual poverty. To know, I have nothing I can give to God. He just chooses to love me because he is love. That's beautiful. The next one says that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's people who realize that life is not a big, giant party. There are things worth celebrating. There are things worth partying. But it's not all of life like that. There are some things that are worth us shedding some tears over. There are some things worth a little bit of righteous grief or righteous anger. We live in a fallen world. There is some stuff to mourn there. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the problem with meek is, again, it doesn't seem, that's, that's one of those aspects that, you know, put your head underwater and take a deep breath, because most of us don't, don't want to be meek, because when we hear meek, we hear weak. But meekness is not weakness. Those aren't the same thing. The best definition I ever heard of meek is strength under control. Strength under control. A meek person is not a weak person. A meek person is a strong person who knows they don't have to be heard every moment of every day. They don't have to come out on top of every single argument. They don't have to get their way in every single situation of life and fight for it. They don't have to be selfish. They can be selfless. A meek person is somebody who demonstrates strength under control. That's a beautiful thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. We hunger and thirst for a lot of things in this world. If you were to look at yourself right now, would you say that you have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Or would you say you have 
other hungers and other thirsts that maybe are greater than that one? Something to ask yourself. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You want to, we all, who here, we're all family here, so in the last handful of months, who here could raise your hand and say there has been a situation where you needed mercy from somebody in your life? Yeah. Yeah. And what I've learned and what most of you have learned too is that if you want to receive mercy, it's best to be a giver of mercy along the way as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I don't think Christians spend enough time in cultivating our calling of being peacemakers in this world. We're called to be difference makers, peacemakers in the world around us. When you walk into a room, are you able to calm a situation? Are you able to speak um, wisdom into a, a situation? Or do you just amp up the drama? Does drama follow you around everywhere you go? If it does, then you're probably the common denominator in all those relationships, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Peter talks about this in his letters quite a bit. That we'll be persecuted. We will suffer for our faith. We serve a suffering Savior. They killed him. And so that's the guy you follow. So why would you expect it to go any different for you, right? And that there's great blessing in the suffering. There's joy even in the suffering. So again, all these things are, are things that most of us, we're not putting those things on our list of life goals for, for most of us. But yet it's the people that we're, we're called to be. I love, um, I love hiking. I mean, I, I really, really, I have a weak body, and I wish I could do so much more than what I can do, but I love it. I'm slow. I just about have a heart attack every time I do it, um, it but I, I, I mean, it just charges me up, and I love it. So you guys know, every year I, I go spend a few days in Yosemite, and I love those hikes that start you down at the valley floor and take you up about 3,000 feet to the top. I love those things, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's grueling. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. Some people are sprinting. I see people running. I just want to punch them, shove them off the cliff, right? <laughs> like, it's, like that, that's just wrong. You, it should hurt. It should hurt you to do what you're doing up there. And so, but, but I love it. And Jamie and I, Jamie was talking to me before my last Yosemite trip, and she was, she's like, I don't get it. It's like, what is the appeal to you to get out there and just, you know, have your heart beating out of your chest and sweating up a storm and, you know, just getting cut up and bruised up and dirty and everything else. She's like, I, I just, I have no desire to do that. I just don't get it. And I was, I, it made me think, I was like, why do I like that so much? And I think the, the main reason I like it, I like the challenge. I, I do. I really enjoy the challenge. I like the feeling of accomplishment after I've, after I've done that really difficult thing. There's, there's, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like getting to the top and, you know, pulling, I always have a, a sweet treat in my pack. We found some little apple pies, and so I was eating apple pie at the top this last time. And you know, I love that sense of accomplishment. And I also like, like you guys, if you've been to Yosemite, you know it's it's a, it's the most beautiful place on the planet. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And to look at it down on the valley floor, there are some great views down there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's amazing on the valley floor. 
lots of cars and lots of buses and you know all that kind of stuff too, tourists everywhere and all that kind of stuff. But but the views are amazing from the valley floor. But I love the opportunity to check out views that you got to work to get to. I love that so much, and I I just I love everything about the hiking experience. I really enjoy it. Jesus gives us these beatitudes. He gives us these these characteristics of what it looks like to be a um, citizen of his kingdom because the lesson that he's trying to teach us is this. Go ahead and put that up. He's trying to teach us this, that we find kingdom blessings down the road less traveled. We find the kingdom blessings, we find the blessings of the kingdom down the road less traveled. I was coming home uh, from Vacaville yesterday on the uh, interstate Anybody else hate the interstate? I hate the interstate. Hate it. Hate it. Like, I get it. It's, it's an engineering marvel. I understand how great the interstate system is. I, I, I'm thankful for it at times. I get it. But it is not just designed to get you quickly from point A to point B. It is designed to suck the soul out of you. It is the worst experience driving on the interstate. I hate it. So I'm coming back, and it was one of those bad traffic days on a weekend here in, you know, Dixon land. And, and, and so I'm, 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 I'm just getting closer and closer to Dixon, slowly, bumper-to-bumper traffic. And I did one of my favorite moves, which I love to do, and that is to exit Midway Road and just take the two-lane home. I love that so much. There's such a feeling of joy and happiness just getting off of that, cutting the window down, letting the wind go through my hand like this. I, I just, I love that so much. You can't do that really on the interstate. I, 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 my dog loves to have the window down uh, when we're driving around. On the interstate, my dog gets blasted to the back of the van, right? It's not, it's not good. But I, I just, I can't stand it. I just love, sometimes I, I get off midway when traffic's not even bad, like just because I need to get off the interstate, right? And what I love about this journey with Christ is that the best things are seen off of the main artery. The best things are seen on the road less traveled. The best things are seen on a little bit more difficult path. And it's not that the Christian life is all drudgery and it's all hard work or anything like that. It's just that, you know, like the scripture put, put it, you know, this whole world is moving in a direction. That, that direction, that path that they're on, it's wide, it's smooth, but there's a narrow path. There's a narrow path that leads to the blessings of the kingdom. And there's joy on that path. It's not easy. It's not always easy. It's joyful. It's a great path. It's amazing. The views are great. The blessings you get to experience on that path are fantastic. But it's not the easiest path. There are easier paths. But it's the one you should take, trust me. It's definitely the one you should take. You ever go on a vacation and doing all the vacation-y, touristy things at that spot, and somebody who's been there or lived there tells you, okay, okay, no, 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 no. Get a couple blocks out of the way. Check out that restaurant, right? Check out that place. Get, go see the view from around there. You know, and they, they, got, they know the inside scoop. This is Jesus who knows the inside scoop to all of life, saying if you want to experience the best blessings that this kingdom has to offer, it happens on the road less traveled. 
It's going to be so easy for you to look around at what everybody else is doing when it comes to family, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to money, when it comes to integrity or lack of, when it comes to anything. Look around, see what everybody else is doing and just blend in. But the biggest blessings are on the road less traveled. The one that Jesus has called us to. That other road will get you somewhere. It's not going to be the same. So this is what I want to do. I want to close with this. Today is Father's Day. And so I want to just close with a little bit of a message to, to fathers. Because as Jesus calls us to live these very um, backward-thinking, countercultural lives, I, I, I talk to dads a lot. I, 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 you know, as, as pastor here and just a friend of other dads and that sort of thing. Like, I, I have a lot of conversations with, with dads. And more often than not, that conversation tends to go towards dads generally feeling guilty about how they do as a father or as a husband, as a leader of a family, feeling like my family deserves better than me, feeling like, you know, I'm not a great dad. I you know, feel like I'm constantly letting everybody down. I feel like I'm disappointing everybody around me. A lot of dads tend to feel that way. We're hard on ourselves. We beat ourselves up quite a bit. And I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I've got two sets of kids, two adult kids and three younger ones. And uh, I'm, doing a, I'm doing a much better job with the younger ones than I did with Isaiah and Molly. Like, much better. Like, they were the guinea pigs. They got the worst of me. I'm rocking it now. I'm rocking it. Like I'm, 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 I'm awesome. <laughs> so, I'm, not, I'm not really, <laughs> but, but I'm doing a better job. And so, this is what I, I, what I want you to know is that I think Jesus' message to us is extremely uh, pertinent to dads today. Like, what would happen, dads, if you began to lead your family? Uh, with a poverty of spirit. Just knowing who you were, knowing what your limitations are, able to admit you don't have it all figured out, you don't know all the answers, just doing the best you can, walking in that kind of humility, leading from that place of humility, how would your family possibly look different? What if you could lead your family from a place of mourning or or emotion? Like, what if you trying to be strong all the time is not what your family needs? What if they need you to lead them through the harder parts of life and be a soft place for them to land when things are going the direction they didn't know it was going to go? What if you could lead your family, dads, with meekness? What if you didn't always have to have your way? What if you stopped leading as a bully? I've done that. I've done that. I've tried to lead my family as a bully. Get my own way. Make sure I maintain the appearance of being in control. Can I tell you, control is nothing more than illusion. It's just an illusion. You're not in control. You can't control anything or anybody. You can abuse somebody into submission, but that's not control. Ultimately, dads, moms too, what you don't want is control of your family. What you want is influence in your family. And influence does not come through bullying. Influence comes through something different. 
What if you began to lead your family from a place of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Dads, what are you hungering and thirsting for right now? Is it power? Is it position? Is it money? Is it stuff? Is it porn? What are you hungering and thirsting for right now? What if you replaced that with the righteousness of God? How would your family look different? What if you led your family from a position of mercy? What if your wife feels like she can't do anything wrong without you beating her up about it? What if your kids feel like they can never make a mistake because you will just hold it over their head and let them have it? And then you and your humanness, us guys in our humanness, whenever we make a mistake and we get the same treatment back, then we're going, ah, cut me a break, I'm not perfect. What if you led with mercy and maybe you would then receive mercy too? What if you led from a place of purity of heart where you led your family not out of selfish ambition, not, but selflessness? Selflessness. What if you were a peacemaker in your family instead of the guy who everybody was nervous around whenever he showed up from work? What if you brought peace to the situation? We're able to calm the situation, speak wisdom into the situation, take uh, amped up family and, and bring it down to something more manageable. What if you led from a position of persecution? Paul said in one of his letters that husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Dads, husbands, your calling in life is death. Just like Jesus. Your role is to give up your life for your family. You feel like everybody else's needs come before yours. You never get any, you know, whatever. You're sacrificing all the time. Congratulations, you're a dad. You're a dad. That's your job. That's your job. Do it with joy. Do it with the same obedience and the same commitment and the same passion that Jesus did it for you. Like give up your life for your family. Again, this, this illusion of control, like I can, you can't control anything. Give it away. Give it up. Like some of you, some of you dads, you're learning. Like I, I, I wish I could have been the husband and the father early on in my marriage that I am today. And I'm not saying I've got it all figured out because I definitely don't. But I've learned some lessons. Like I've learned some lessons. I've learned that you know, I, I got to give up myself. I used to want to win all the arguments. I used to want to have the last word in everything. You know what I want now? Peace. Just peace. I, I, I will lose every argument for the sake of peace. It's so not worth it to just be constantly butting heads with the people that you love the most in this world, just so you can be right. Give up your life. Lay down your life. Now, for some of you, you're like, I ain't never doing that. Okay. I'll see you in counseling. Fine. Or you can, or you can take the short track. You can take the, the road less traveled, the one paved with blessings, the one that Jesus leads us down. You can get there 
with your peace, your comfort, not your comfort, but your, your sanity still intact. This is the life Jesus has called us to. Dad's, being a dad is not just something where, yeah, you get Father's Day now. I've never, by the way, I've never met a dad that actually cared about Father's Day. Never really, I mean, I mean, it's nice, don't get me wrong, it's great. I love, it's great. I, get, I got a steak last night, it's awesome, right? But I've never met a dad who's doing it for Father's Day. We do it because of our family. We do it because we, we love them with every ounce of who we are. I give up my life for them. Problem is that oftentimes we want to keep hanging on to bits of our life, and that's where the conflict comes from. Just lay it down like Jesus laid it down for you. It's not easy. It's not easy. Nobody else around you is doing it. Everybody else is doing it for career. Everybody else is doing it for money. Everybody else is doing it for power, control, whatever else. But this path is where you're going to find the kingdom blessing. The ones that actually matter. You know how Jesus in this, I'm going to close with this. Jesus never said in any of these things, blessed are the whatever, the poor in spirit or the meek, for they'll have a fat bank account. Blessed are the peacemakers. Big house. No, none of that. Because those aren't the blessings. I mean, those things are blessings. Don't get me wrong. In fact, none of these blessings even promise a family. Sometimes we, we elevate family to the point where it's the greatest blessing in the world. And it's fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Family's great. It's, it's up there. But there are bigger blessings in your life than just family. Single people in the room. Everybody that's pointing you to ultimate fulfillment through, fa- through family. It's a load of hogwash. Your ultimate fulfillment will not come from your family. If you try to get your ultimate fulfillment in life from your family, you have idolized that family, you have made them a God, and you will crush them under the weight of your expectations. That's not what we're aiming at. It's a good thing, but we're aiming at God things. God things. So, this is what dads, this is what I want you to do. I want you to join me on this road less traveled. There'll be times I stumble and I falter and I get off trail, and you can grab me and pull me back on trail. And you'll do the same, and I'll try to do the same thing for you. And I don't have it all figured out, and you don't have it all figured out, but if we're aiming for the same thing, we've locked our arms and we're doing it together, I think we'll arrive. I think we'll get there. So let's do that, all right? All right, let's pray. Father, your word is amazing, and we thank you so much for uh, calling us to something different. There's not a person in this room who can't look at the world around us and go, there's got to be something different. And, and there is, and it's what you've called us to. So God, help us to trust you enough to live in a way that is counter to what makes sense to us. Help us to trust you enough to just simply obey you in the things that you call us to do, even if maybe they don't make sense. Um, help us to trust you because, because you're God and we're not. Because you have proven over and over again your love for us and your compassion for us. and You gave it all up for us. And so uh, help us to learn to give it up for the, the ones around us that we love and for you. 
So we love you. Take us to the mountain. Take us up that path that few people tread. Uh, We want not just uh, the blessings that the commercials on TV between, you know, the show tell us about, but we want the blessings that you've stored up for us, that you've prepared for us, uh, the ones that will be true blessings in our lives. So we'll trust you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good. Amen.